This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for May 15th, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard, filling in for Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we have David Grimm up first with some online news stories. And then we hear from Richard Stone about science in Cuba. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Suzanne Bard. Just how much would you be willing to sacrifice for chocolate? Our first story will test whether you have the empathy level of a rat. A new study tested whether rats would choose between chocolate and saving a drowning companion. What was this all about, Dave? Well, you know, this is all about, Suzanne, to test this idea whether animals besides humans feel empathy. And there had been some hints in the past that rats do feel empathy. There was an experiment carried out in 2011 where one rat was trapped in a narrow plastic tube and one of its companions could work on the latch for that tube until it figured out how to spring the trap and let its friend out. But some skeptics said, well, this wasn't really empathy. Maybe the one rat was just lonely and this was a way to sort of find a companion. And so in this new experiment, the researchers really try to get rid of some of these confounding factors and try to prove empathy in rats once and for all. So how do they go about doing that with chocolate? <laughs> well, so before we get to the chocolate, here's the setup. Basically, there's a chamber and it's got two compartments and there's a rat in each compartment. And one compartment is filled with water and the rat is sort of forced to swim in the water. The rat won't actually drown, but the rat has to tread water for maybe about five minutes and the rats really don't like to have to do this. And the other compartment doesn't have water, just has another rat. And what this other rat can do is basically open the door to the other compartment so that the rat in the water can escape. So in the first set of experiments, the researchers found that, yes, rats will open the door and let their companion escape. 
and that they would do this even when there wasn't water in their companion's compartment, which suggested that they weren't just opening the doors that they could have a friend, but that they somehow knew this other rat was suffering and were trying to let them out to alleviate the suffering. And now the chocolate came in, the researchers actually said, okay, well, what if we put chocolate in a third compartment and the rats can either choose the chocolate or save their swimming companion? And they found in 50 to 80% of cases, rats would actually still first save their companion before they went for the chocolate, suggesting not only do rats feel empathy, but that this empathy is stronger than the desire for food, especially chocolate in some cases. So there were actually a few holdouts who would choose the chocolate over their friend. <laughs> there were. There were. And I'm sure among humans, there would probably be some holdouts as well. Next, it's interesting to imagine what life was like before the abundance of artificial lighting, when people's circadian rhythms were still entrained by natural light cycles. And there's growing evidence that all the extraneous light that we have today is tripping up our internal clocks with a plethora of health consequences. What does the latest study look at, Dave? Well, this new study looks at whether all this light is actually making us fatter than we already are. And this was, again, a rodent study, but this time we're looking at mice, not rats. And the researchers were looking at two kinds of fat. The body has two kinds of fat. One is brown fat and one is white fat. White fat is sort of the fat that you normally think of about when you think about fat. This is the fat that stores and releases energy. But brown fat is mainly for producing heat. And researchers have long tried to figure out, well, how can we get brown fat to produce more heat as a way to sort of reduce some of the fat in our body, basically getting it to burn itself off? They've hit upon a protein called beta-3 adrenergic receptor. And when this is activated, it encourages brown fat cells to burn off more fat and produce more heat. And so in the new study, researchers want to see, well, are we seeing any impact on fat or on beta-3 adrenergic receptor when these mice are exposed to excess artificial light? So they put the mice on several different lighting conditions? Yeah, they expose them to artificial light for 12, 16, or 24 hours a day. And I think 12 is normal, so 16 and 24 is excess. And what they found is that the brown fat in mice exposed to prolonged periods of light absorbed less nutrients from the blood and burned less fat as a result of reduced activity of this beta-3 adrenergic receptor. In essence, their body's furnaces were using less fuel and burning less intensely. And the problem was actually made even worse by this excess light because the fatty molecules that were left in the blood that were not being burned up by this brown fat were actually absorbed elsewhere, often into white adipose tissue that makes up the classical body fat we think of when we think of body fat. And as a result of all this, the mice that were exposed to excess levels of artificial light packed on between 25 and 50% more fat during the course of these experiments. Well, that's pretty substantial. Now, the team went a step further than that and severed nerves between the brown fat cells and the sympathetic nervous system. Right. Well, they wanted to get at this idea of whether artificial light also impacts our circadian rhythm and whether that actually plays a role in this weight gain. The circadian rhythm is your internal body clock. It sort of tells you when to wake up, when to go to sleep, even when to eat. And the researchers found that when they cut this nerve, which disrupted the body's circadian 
same rhythm, brown fat absorbed less nutrients regardless of light exposure. And that indicated that this disrupted circadian signaling is likely to blame for the effect that the researchers saw with fat metabolism in these rodents. Okay, so I doubt most people are going to start rising at 7 a.m. and going to bed 12 hours later. At this stage, are there any lessons for humans? Well, you know, it's always hard to say. It's a rodent study, and the researchers are sort of cautious about making any sort of prescriptive recommendations based on the work. But they do say, you know, if we can conclude anything, darkening the bedroom might be a good idea. Interesting. In our final story, women are having children later in life, and it's no longer considered experimental for them to freeze their eggs to put off childbearing. Scientists have now calculated at what age women should do that in order to have the best chance of getting pregnant as many years down the road as possible. What went into this metric, Dave? Well, the researchers gathered a lot of data based on national registries, surveys of pregnancies, fertility treatments, records from fertility clinics. And what they were basically trying to figure out is, is there an ideal age, A, to freeze your eggs, and also to take in other factors that sometimes people think about. One of these is how viable these eggs will be. So the earlier you freeze your eggs, the more viable they are, the more likely they're eventually going to result in a pregnancy. But the procedure also costs a lot of money. And for younger women, it doesn't necessarily make sense to freeze their eggs because if they're going to try to have kids in a few years, they can just do that anyways and save themselves tens of thousands of dollars with this procedure. So the real goal of the study was to figure out, you know, is there a sweet spot for women to freeze their eggs? And sort of how long can women wait to freeze their eggs and still have a pretty decent chance of having a live birth based on the eggs? And what does their model show? What the researchers found was that freezing eggs increased the chances of live birth for all ages. So even younger women that froze their eggs, they were more likely to have a live birth if they used those eggs. But for women under 32, this advantage was really slim, maybe about less than 10% of a difference. So for those women, it doesn't really make economic sense for them to freeze their eggs. And so what the researchers found that the largest improvement really came when eggs were frozen at age 37. Normally, if women at age 37 wait a few years to have children, their chances of success are in the 20% range. But if they froze their eggs and then waited about seven years to have children, those eggs actually had a about a 50% chance of resulting in live birth. Now, this doesn't mean 37 is the best time to freeze your eggs. It's still better to freeze younger. But if you're going to wait till the last possible moment, 37 seems to be one of the last ages you want to do this at, because after that, the viability of the eggs really starts going downhill. Okay, so a woman who might be thinking about this for now or in the future, what should she do with this information? Well, you know, the experts that we talked to for the story say it's important to remember this is all based on models, and this isn't necessarily definitive. But, you know, for those women who really need an answer now or really trying to make a decision now, the researchers hope that this information will be at least somewhat helpful. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Suzanne, we've got a story about the best way to get people out of poverty, at least from a scientific standpoint. Also a story about a new technique that may help scientists and doctors determine whether somebody has been exposed to dangerous levels of radioactivity in a much quicker way than we've been able to do in the past. For Science Insider, we've got a story about why an Australian university has pulled the plug on a climate skeptics center. Also a story about why we may be seeing the end of disease names like Ebola and monkeypox. It turns out the World Health Organization wants much more neutral and some would say blander disease names. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Suzanne. David Grimm is the editor for our daily online news site. 
I'm Suzanne Bard. You can check out the latest news in the policy blog Science Insider at news.sciencemag.org. Next, because it's been politically and economically isolated from much of the world for more than half a century, few people are aware that Cuba has an active scientific research community, especially in the areas of biotechnology and medicine. International news editor Richard Stone traveled to the island nation to report on the state of science in Cuba and how recent shifts in foreign policy could affect research activities there. Science in Cuba really began with Carlos Finlay. He was a medical doctor, epidemiologist, and discoverer that mosquitoes transmit yellow fever. He made this pretty seminal discovery in 1881. That was a time when Cuba was actually still part of the Spanish Empire. Cuba won its independence from Spain in the late 1800s and came under American influence then. American influence in the first half of the 20th century was not good for Cuban science. Essentially, America treated Cuba as an extractive resource, buying sugarcane and tobacco. It did not invest in the scientific infrastructure there. So science in Cuba really lagged in the first half of the 20th century. A World Bank group came in to make an assessment in 1950 and basically said Cuba has no science. All they had were three agricultural research stations devoted to improving sugarcane and tobacco. But all this changed after Fidel Castro came to power in 1959. Castro really surprised the country in a speech the next year in 1960 when he claimed that the future of Cuba is going to be guided by men of science. This was a surprise because at the time, many Cubans were still unable to read and write. So basically, Cuba was starting from a very low educational level, and Fidel Castro came in and had these pretty grand aspirations. But he followed through, and there was a big literacy campaign in 1962, and then in 1965, the creation of a national research center. That same year, the Academy of Sciences of Cuba which had been pretty quiescent for decades, it came back to life and started founding institutions that would conduct research in natural sciences. So you had this flourishing of research in the mid-1960s. The first PhD awarded in modern Cuba was in 1973 to a neuroscientist, and the country has built up a pretty substantial infrastructure since then. So now the country has about 6,000 scientists and a pretty thriving research in specific fields of science. And we'll return to the specific areas where science in Cuba has flourished in a bit. But first, let's talk about how Cuba's isolation has affected the scientific community there. So all the while that Fidel Castro was trying to build a modern nation grounded in science, the country faced massive restrictions, basically stemming from the 
trade embargo that the U.S. has applied to Cuba for the past 55 years. The trade embargo restricts just about any kind of scientific activity, research exchange with Americans. Federal funding cannot be spent on science in Cuba. And most critically, probably to the Cuban research community, is it prohibits the export of scientific equipment instruments that have at least 10% of American-made components. So that is a massive constraint on science in Cuba that they have had to deal with. And it's been something that they've tried to work around by acquiring equipment from Asia. They do collaborate in Cuba with researchers in Europe. They're not entirely shut off from the world scientific community, but not being able to easily interact with American researchers has held back many fields of science. As one Cuban researcher told me, the blockade, as they call the trade embargo, is omnipresent. It's like God. It rules every aspect of the scientific life there. And when you went to Cuba, you got to see how some scientists improvise with the limited resources they have. A handful of really inspirational, motivated Cuban scientists have been able to make some pretty remarkable discoveries. One researcher who I met is Ernesto Altschuler of the University of Havana. He's a physicist there. He calls himself a guerrilla scientist for a very interesting approach to doing research in an isolated country. And what he's been able to do, just basically spending pennies on research while Western researchers spend many millions of dollars on similar work, is quite stunning. He created a free-falling granular laboratory to model the impact of objects in sandy environments in low gravity on other planets. So if a lander comes down on a planet in a different gravity from Earth's, trying to model what that process is like. So he created this free-falling granular laboratory basically from a bucket full of sand as the bucket is free-falling in the hallway stairwell. And so it's a project where he didn't really have to spend any money at all. He says Cuba may not have a lot of resources, but it has a lot of sand. I think it's interesting, innovative approaches to projects that I was most impressed by. And despite a lack of resources, you mentioned that Cuban science is actually flourishing in certain fields. So Cuba doesn't spend a lot of money on research, but the guiding principle the scientists tell me is it has to have societal value. So, for instance, they've prioritized fields that are going to have that societal payoff. And one area that they've invested a lot of money in is biotechnology. So the country basically spent a billion dollars in the 80s and 90s building up a biotech research and development industry. And nowadays, it's the second biggest source of revenue for the country. The exports from the biotech industry total around several hundred million dollars per year. So the billion-dollar investment clearly paid off, and it's a major source of income for the entire country. Interesting. And tell me more about the biotech industry in Cuba. Cuba's biotech industry basically started with production of interferon back in the 1980s, and they used the interferon to treat the tropical disease dengue. Interferon was pretty good at reducing bleeding in these cases. So that was the foundation of Cuba's biotech industry. It is 
expanded quite a bit. Some of their biggest export products now are recombinant epidural growth factor for diabetic ulcers. They make a recombinant erythropoietin for anemia, those sorts of conditions. And they have a pentavalent vaccine against five different diseases, diphtheria, tetanus, whooping cough, hepatitis B, and influenza type B. So these are major export earners for the country. And they're actually at the forefront of an experimental approach to treating cancer, so therapeutic cancer vaccines. There are dozens, I would say, of experimental cancer vaccines in trial in the United States. But Cuba has actually been treating cancer patients with cancer vaccines for the past 15 years. And they have two vaccines against an advanced form of lung cancer, which are now in pretty common use. And plans are to make these available nationwide by the end of the year. They have experimental cancer vaccines against breast tumors and other cancers that are going to be rolled out soon as well. So it's not just a matter of replicating the success of other countries in biotechnology and making products more cheaply that other countries already make. It's a matter of actually pioneering one area in particular, cancer vaccine research, so I think that the American researchers who I talk to say, even though Cuba's been isolated, we still have the potential for pretty interesting cooperative projects with them. And you write that Cubans enjoy a long lifespan, but the population is graying. What's driving these demographics, Richard? So in some ways, Cuba is a victim of its own success because it has this pretty advanced biotechnology industry and they immunize infants against 13 different diseases. So they have a very low infant death rate. So that's one factor. They have a very high density of doctors per capita. So those two factors have resulted in a life expectancy of around 78 years, which is on par with the U.S. And that's even though Cuba spends a fraction of the amount per capita on health care. So you have people living a very long life. But it's a growing population for two reasons. One, a lot of young people do emigrate, so they leave the country. And then a lot of young people who stay are not having babies. The fertility rate is quite low. And the scientists tell me it's because, you know, there's really not a lot of money for raising families there. So that has resulted in a growing population. The average age of Cuba has risen recently from the mid-30s up to the mid-40s. And this poses a big challenge in ensuring that you have a young, vital workforce. And while you were there, you got to interview Fidel Castro's son, who's a scientist with big visions for nanotech in Cuba. Yes. So Fidel Castro Diaz-Balart is the oldest son of Fidel, and he was trained as a nuclear scientist in the Soviet days. Originally, when he came back to Cuba in 1980, his task was to build a nuclear power industry. And in fact, Cuba started building two nuclear power reactors in 1983, but they could never complete them. The Soviet Union collapsed. The major patron was no longer supporting Cuba. And the nuclear power aspirations were put on hold. So recently, Fidel Castro Jr. has become interested in nanotechnology. He wants to build up a nanotechnology 
research enterprise in Cuba. He wants to basically replicate the success of the biotechnology industry there. And so they're going to be opening a center for advanced studies in Cuba later this year, focused on nanotechnology. And this is his baby. He's interesting because he strikes quite a contrast to his father. I mean, his father was this firebrand leader of the Cuban uprising, great public speaker. Fidel Castro Diaz Balart, he is much more mild-mannered than his father. He's quiet, he's studious, he strikes me as a very deep thinker, but doesn't strike me as a politician. And in fact, at the end of his interview, I asked him, you know, with his uncle Raul Castro, who's in charge now, getting on in age, whether he had political aspirations, and he just smiled and he said, maybe in my next life, in this one, I feel very good to be a scientist. Interesting. And the Obama administration recently took historic steps to start normalizing relations with Cuba. What could this mean for the future of science there, Richard? Yeah, the December 17 announcement by President Obama and President Castro of Cuba about the desire to seek normal relations, that really was a big surprise for Cuban researchers and it has the potential to, as one scientist put it, make Cuban scientists no longer a pariah. So what this actually means in practicality, this is what the current situation is. American researchers now have essentially carte blanche to travel to Cuba, to meet Cuban counterparts, to discuss research, to plan cooperative research. The embargo on spending federal money on science in Cuba is still in place, so you can't take your NIH grant and spend it on Cuban research. What you can do is you can raise money from private foundations, and you can spend that in Cuba, bearing in mind that the embargo on scientific equipment exports to Cuba is still in place. Now, there's a caveat. The Commerce Department came out with new regulations that say equipment that is not dual use in nature, so doesn't have any applicability to weapons research, that can now be freely donated to Cuba. So that's a big opportunity for Cuban scientists and American scientists to help their Cuban counterparts to modernize labs. So I would say there's a lot of potential still. There's a lot of potential for more fruitful relations. It's not going to be easy. It's going to take a while for scientists with the right kind of research interests to match up with Cuban researchers. There's going to be some challenges in raising money for this sort of work. But um, on the whole, there is a lot of optimism. Thanks so much for speaking with me, Richard. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Richard Stone writes about scientific research in Cuba, This Week in Science. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.